This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. Welcome to this Uvula Audio Young Adult presentation of X Marks the Spy by Jack Lancer. Long before the recent Spy Kids or Agent Cody Banks movies, back in 1967, the publishing company Grossop and Dunlap decided to take advantage of the popularity of James Bond, Mad Helm, The Man from Uncle, The Prisoner, and Wild Wild West. Yes, there were a whole slew of adult secret agents in television and movies back then. And they decided to start their own young adult version of James Bond, an American spy teen with the unlikely name of Christopher Cool. The book was supposedly written by one Jack Lancer, but just like the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, and even the Rick Brandt series, Jack Lancer was a pseudonym for a Grosset and Dunlap house writer. In a 1989 interview published in Comics Interview, writer Jim Lawrence disclosed that he was the author of the Christopher Cool series. Lawrence, by the way, went on to write the long-running Daily Express comic strip adventures of James Bond from 1966 through 1977. Among his adaptations were the comic versions of The Man with the Golden Gun, The Living Daylights, Octopussy, and The Spy Who Loved Me. Christopher Cool is a lean, blue-eyed, blonde sophomore at New Jersey's mythical Ivy League school, Kingston University. When Cool was 17 and still in high school, his father, Jonathan Cool, America's foremost researcher in high-energy physics, disappeared during a scientific conference in Europe. Remember, this is set in the middle of the Cold War. Christopher became convinced that he was kidnapped by enemy agents. With little hope of being accepted, Chris applied for CIA training, and to his surprise, he was tapped at once by the CIA subdivision, TEEN. The acronym stands for the Top Secret Educational Espionage Network. Already polylingual in a dozen languages, Chris could pass as a native speaker in several different tongues before his training. After rigorous training in electronics, photography, cryptography, flying, scuba diving, and self-defense, he enrolled as a freshman at Kingston where he found himself rooming with fellow agent Geronimo Johnson. Other members of TEEN include the red-haired Spice Carter, a student at Vassar University, Yumi Toyama, a Japanese-American student at Berkeley College, and Beauregard Tatum, an African-American student at Harvard. X Marks the Spy is the first in the series, which only had six books total. Despite how silly this whole premise sounds, Jim Lawrence, a.k.a. Jack Lancer, does a nice job of keeping the whole thing fun and pretty harmless for teens and kids. It's also sort of a nice kiddie introduction to the Cold War. We think you and your kids will enjoy it. And now, X Marks the Spy. Chapter 1. The Fun House. Spring had come to Kingston University. The April breeze ruffling the ivy on the mellow red bricks of the bell tower was growing warmer. So was the watch on Chris Cool's wrist. The lean, blonde sophomore felt the metal case burning his skin as he strolled across the campus with his Apache roommate, Geronimo Johnson. Hot flash from control, Chris murmured. Let's go, Chunde, said Geronimo. 
They headed for a bullet-like Jaguar on the parking lot near the dormitory. Chris slid behind the wheel, and the copper-skinned Indian youth took the bucket seat beside him. The 4.2-liter engine purred like a well-fed pussycat and then broke into a full-throated jungle roar as the gleaming black jag shot down the driveway into Madison Circle. Beyond the arched campus gateway, the car rolled swiftly through the quiet colonial streets of Kingston, drowsing in the late afternoon sunshine. Well, Professor Adelaide Rothbotham frowned primly as they tooled past. That cool again. Most brilliant student I've ever had, yet there he goes, off to New York with another night on the town. The young idiot would rather moon away his time in some bleating disc attack, I suppose. On the open highway, Chris reached under the dash and drew out the radio telephone. Kingston won to Q. There was a moment's pause before the voice of teen control responded in his usual false British accent. This is agreed most urgent. Understood. Have you ever heard of a place called Funland? Affirmative. It's an amusement park on the Jersey Palisades. Go there. Look for a man in a dark suit, bushy black mustache, and red-blue-striped tie. And when I find him, identify yourself by rubbing your left eye, then yawn. Once you make contact, proceed with extreme caution. Hear what he has to say. Is he one of ours, sir? No idea. Chap just phoned Cloak and Dagger in New York. This was Q's pet name for the CIA. He wanted someone to meet him at this funland place, said he had vital information on a CIA man named Anson, Albert Anson, who's missing in France. How come they handed the job to us, sir? The fellow sounded terrified, said he was being followed, and whoever met him must use the utmost caution. Cloak and Dagger felt a teen agent might stand less chance of being spotted. Now listen, this could turn into a rather sticky wicket, so watch your step. Understood, sir. Chris shoved the radio telephone back into his receptacle. Naha, Ashla, Geronimo inquired. What's the pitch? Chris found himself slipping naturally into the Apache tongue as he relayed Q's orders. The boys often conversed in this curious language, a code that no enemy eavesdropper or lip-reader could possibly crack. Both had volunteered for their dangerous role as secret agents, Geronimo coming from the greatest race of guerrilla fighters in history, with the blood of Apache war chiefs in his veins, had been naturally attracted to the stealthy, deadly business of Cold War espionage. Chris had a stronger reason. His father, Dr. Jonathan Cool, America's foremost researcher in high-energy physics, had disappeared during a scientific conference in Europe two years before. Convinced he was kidnapped by enemy agents, Chris vowed to find him. Only 17 at the time, Chris had applied for CIA training, with little hope of being accepted. To his surprise, he'd been tapped at once, not for the CIA, but for an organization he had never heard of called TEEN. This hush-hush core of bright young students had been specially developed by intelligence on the theory that its members would be less open to suspicion than older agents. The name stood for Top Secret Educational Espionage Network. Already a genius at languages, Chris could pass as a native in several different tongues. After rigorous training in electronics, photography, cryptography, 
flying, scuba diving, karate, and aikido. He had been enrolled as a freshman at Kingston, an Ivy League university, where he found himself rooming with a fellow teen agent, Geronimo Johnson. The Jaguar raced north on the Garden State Parkway and turned off onto Route 46, leading east to the Hudson River. Funland sprawled along one side of the sign-cluttered New Jersey Highway. An enormous Ferris wheel and looping roller coaster tracks loomed above other amusement rides. Chris slid the Jag into an open space at one end of the parking lot. A leather-jacketed motorcyclist on a Honda stared enviously at the sleek car. His lip curled to wisecrack at Geronimo's long black hair, but the Indian's cold stare made him kick his engine to life and zoom off. Daylight was fading as the sun sank behind a low-lying cloud bank. Neon signs were flashing on in Funland. Chris and Geronimo bought tickets and went in through the turnstile. What's the drill, Chunde? Circulate around the midway, I guess, and keep our eyes peeled. They moved slowly through the early Friday evening throng. Gaudy signs proclaimed the attractions. Flight to Mars. Jungle Land. Skydive, Tunnel of Love, Submarine Sandwich, Go-Kart Rally. Geronimo plucked at Chris's sleeve. On the left, Chunde, Penny Arcade. A black-mustached man was coming out. One glimpse of his face told the story. He was pale and sweaty and glassy-eyed with fear. The two teen agents dawdled near a cotton candy machine to watch. The man hurried on with a furtive glance over his shoulder. He kept to the brightly lit center of the midway, doing his best to lose himself in the throng. Two men came out of the arcade, heading in the same direction. One, bull-necked with tiny raisin eyes, wore a tight blue serge suit and wide-brimmed hat. The other was in a trench coat and bareheaded. They moved with the unhurried air of jungle beasts stalking easy prey, the bull-necked man was chewing on a toothpick. Diga, said Chris. Let's go. The boys followed a dozen paces behind. Presently, the two hoods veered off to watch a couple who were popping ducks in a shooting gallery. Their quarry had stopped at a soft drink stand across from the funhouse. Keep going, Chris muttered. The boys circled to the farther counter of the pop stand opposite the side on which the man with the black mustache was standing. Chris and Geronimo watched him across the open booth. His hand was shaking, and he was having trouble getting his glass of ginger ale up to his mouth without spilling it. The man's eyes flitted over the passing crowd and the faces around the counter. His gaze met Chris's and suddenly locked on as the blonde youth rubbed his left eye. Chris yawned. The man's lips trembled in speechless relief. Chris wiped two fingers across the counter, indicating the two goons. Then he tilted his head toward the funhouse. The man nodded imperceptibly. He eyed Chris's copper-skinned companion and walked off across the midway. Chris and Geronimo stayed with their cokes. In a moment, they saw Bullneck and Trenchcoat stroll toward the funhouse. "'Which one do you want, Redskin?' Chris murmured. "'The big one with the toothpick.' The funhouse was fronted with grotesque comic faces. In the open mouth of one face was the ticket window. The two hoods paid their admission and disappeared through the bead-curtained entrance. Chris and Geronimo bought tickets and followed them inside 
to a hall of trick mirrors. Bullneck and trench coat were already out of sight. The teen agents hurried after them into a dim passageway. It curved crazily. The floorboards began to sink and hump like ocean waves under their tread. Chris stepped on a whirling disc that almost spun him off his feet. The passage grew darker. Hanging cobwebs brushed their faces. At times, the boys had to stoop or sidle along to avoid obstacles. Crazy white men, Geronimo muttered. Chris grinned. Suddenly, a shriek pierced the air, then a long, ghastly wail. Chris felt a pang of alarm. Had they lagged too far behind? Snap it up, he told his partner. The passageway seemed to widen out. A dangling skeleton and gruesome mummy heads glowed palely in the darkness. Heavy objects like piled sandbags made an obstacle course ahead. Chris took a pen from his sports coat and plucked off the cap and held it up to one eye. Through the snooper scope, he could make out the reddish, ghostly forms of the two hoods groping their way around the opposite walls of the room to the exit. Chris headed left, his fingers encountering slimy, clammy objects along the wall. Chains clanked, and another scream echoed weirdly. With his scope, Chris zeroed in quickly on the man in the trench coat. One last quick glimpse showed the thug whirling around anxiously as he heard movement behind him. His hand came out of his pocket, clutching a weapon. Chris leapt forward and struck swiftly. His open hand chopped downward in a paralyzing blow to the man's forearm. There was a groan of pain, and a metal object clattered to the floor. A savat kick to the jaw finished him off. Chris beamed a flashlight over the unconscious gunman. He frisked him deftly but found nothing of interest. Through the darkness came faint grunting and scuffling noises followed by a gasp. The teen agents rejoined each other at the blue-lit exit. Geronimo was straightening his tie. His teeth gleamed in a wide grin. All set? Chris asked. He was a most delightful fellow, said Geronimo. At the end of the maze, the boys scrambled out through a huge revolving barrel, then got dumped down a chute to the final exit, a cage-like room barred from floor to ceiling. A few bars were rubber. Chris and Geronimo squirmed outside. The man with the black mustache was sitting on one of the midway benches. Let's play this safe, Chris muttered. He may have another tale besides those two goons. The boys walked past him to the shooting gallery. Geronimo bought a round of shots and began knocking down targets with an offhand ease that made the owner's eyes pop wordly. Presently, their contact got up and strolled off toward the wooded picnic area at one end of the park. Chris scanned the throng keenly. Looks all clear, he reported under his breath. Geronimo laid down his rifle and waved away the cheap souvenir which the owner offered. Ugh, he kidded. Injun no like white man's trade junk. The man just stared at him. Still weary, the boys approached the picnic area by a roundabout route. Dusk had fallen, but the tablets were deserted, and they could pick out the man with the mustache clearly enough. He was waiting near a clump of shrubbery. A stifled cry then broke from his lips. The spot was too far away from the midway for anybody but the teen agents to hear. The man seemed to be writhing and shivering frantically. He started to run, but the impulse carried him over two or three steps before he stumbled and collapsed. Chris would have darted to assist him, but Geronimo grabbed his roommate's arm. Ilse Chunde, watch it, buddy. He 
You pull Chris into the shadows. They peer through the gathering twilight. Was the man ill, or had some unseen assassin struck him down? A siren wailed in the distance. It drew closer, swelling to a deafening shriek, then stopped as if the police car or ambulance, whatever it was, had turned into the park. The midway throng began searching toward the funhouse. Somebody must have stumbled onto our two playmates, Chris whispered. They could detect no movement in the picnic area. The hubbub was drawing all the attention to the other side of the park. The boys circled among the trees to the figure on the ground. As they rolled him over, Chris gasped. The man felt freezing cold. In the glow of Geronimo's flashlight, they saw why. His clothes, skin, and hair were coated with frost. What? Geronimo blurted in a shaken voice. What's happened to him? The face was blue with cold and his black mustache had come askew. Chris peeled it off. In the man's pockets were two passports. One bore a photograph that showed him disguised with a fake mustache. It was made out to John Lee. The other passport showed him clean-shaven. Chris read the name and gave a low whistle. He's Ivor Anson. He's the missing agent. Chapter 2. Assignment in Paris. The Black Jaguar came into Manhattan through the Lincoln Tunnel and headed uptown through the Saturday morning traffic. On Broadway near 56th Street stood the showroom of Luxury Motors, its windows gleaming with expensive foreign sports cars. The Jag pulled into the service entrance. As Chris and Geronimo got out, a white-smocked attendant came bustling up with his clipboard. I'd like to speak to the service manager, said Chris. Is he in? Uh, right through that door, sir. The two college students went into the anteroom, where a secretary with honey-colored shoulder-length hair was seated at a desk. She gave them a dazzling smile and pressed a button. The boys went through another door into an elevator. Chris spoke into an intercom grill. Kingston 1 and 2 for debriefing. The cage rose to the top floor. A guard peered at them through a bulletproof glass port before the elevator door slid open. The boys went down a carpeted corridor, past the clattering noise of typewriters and teletype machines, past the steel-doored code room and the top-secret special projects laboratory, to a flush-paneled door at the end of the hall. An electronic eye sounded a buzzer inside, and a green light flashed. The door opened. Come in, Q barked impatiently. He was sitting hunched at a massive walnut desk with a built-in TV monitor screen. As usual, he wore a navy blue blazer over his open-necked white shirt and a beat-up yachting cap. An unlit pipe protruded from his thicket of grayish-blonde beard, and a half-empty bottle of milk stood close at hand. Q eyed the boys peevishly. Rather a nasty little mess you chaps left at the park last night. All sir bothering you again, sir? Chris inquired innocently. Q's face flushed and he started to bellow a reply, but he choked it off and instead poured himself a soothing swig of milk. The blazer and yachting cap gave him the dashing air of a retired Royal Navy skipper. Chris and Geronimo suspected he had never commanded anything larger than a canoe in Central Park. For the hundredth time, they wondered who Q really was. More than once, the boys had debated whether even the beard might not be false. "'How's Anson doing, sir?' Chris asked. 
Still in the hospital. Q wiped the milk off his whiskers and sat back. He's recovered consciousness, and the medics say he'll live. But the poor buggers, out of his mind, can't tell us a thing. His nose and fingers were frostbitten, by the way. Are there any theories on that? None worth wasting my breath on. Geronimo asked. What about the two gunmen? They won't talk. Cloak and dagger still working on them. Of course, truth serum, hypnosis and that sort of thing. The general impression is that they've been given mind-blotting treatment, which might point to Toad. The boys exchanged startled glances. Toad was the most feared and fiendish secret organization in the world. As a criminal setup aimed at eventual world domination, it outmuscled all known gangs. Its intelligent network at times rivaled the Russian KGB or the American CIA. Are we allowed to know what sort of job Anson was on, sir? It seems you'll have to know. Q got up from his desk to pace the floor. Anson was sent to France to gather information on a revolutionary new secret weapon. The device is called Ciel Assassin, or in English, Sky Kill. Who has it, sir? Put in Geronimo. We've no idea. What it does, how it works, who invented it, are all unknown. But according to the wild rumors that have filtered through, this thing could change the balance of power in the Cold War. Chris inquired. Have they backtracked on Anson? Q nodded and chewed on his pipe. He flew in from Paris yesterday morning on that fake passport. Don't ask me why. One guess is that he picked up some information so hot he didn't even dare pass it back through the Paris station of the CIA. Another is that something frightened him into a complete panic. Maybe both. And where do we fit in, sir? Cloak and Dagger wants one of our teams sent over to sniff out the situation. Since you two contacted Anson, you seem to be the logical choice. Spring vacation in Paris. Chris managed to suppress a grin of delight. How much do we have to go on, sir? Little enough. Anson was a lone wolf, had his own way of operating. It seems he had wide contacts in the French underworld and used the code name Omega when buying information from tipsters and stool pigeons. Apparently that was how he first picked up this lead on Skykill. Does the CIA have any kind of idea what sort of a lead it was? Q shook his head. No, none. However, there is one other clue. He opened a drawer and took out a small roll of canvas and spread it out on the desk. The canvas bore an oil painting, a portrait of a dark-haired girl. This was sewn into Anson's coat lining. Chris made out the artist's signature. Triquet. Has the CIA checked out that name? They've tried, but none of the art collectors here in New York have ever heard of him. Didn't recognize the style either. Can we have a copy of this? Photographic prints have already been made. Pomeroy will give each of you one. You ought to see him before you leave here, of course. Pomeroy was the chief of teens, technical staff, sometimes referred to as the Department of Dirty Tricks. He was a fussy, bald-headed little genius who outfitted all teen agents with their electronic gadgetry and other special equipment. How soon do we leave, sir? Geronimo asked. Tomorrow night, two seats have been booked on an Air France flight to Paris. On Sunday evening, the helicopter bus deposited the boys at Kennedy International Airport. They checked in at the Air France ticket counter, 
picked two seats off of the seating chart, and went upstairs to the lounge. At last the loudspeaker announced their flight. The boys filed aboard the huge transatlantic jet with the other passengers. A stewardess hung their raincoats on the wardrobe rack and showed them to their seats. Geronimo took the window and Chris slid in beside him. The seats were three abreast, and presently a girl was ushered to the aisle seat next to Chris. Geronimo murmured the Apache equivalent of quite a dish. You're not being sent on this war party to admire squaws, Chris replied in the same language. I'll handle that. The girl's pale blonde hair was cut in a short boyish style. Her face looked tense and unhappy. Would you care to sit by the window? The girl seemed startled by Chris's question. Her slightly slanted violet eyes flashed over him. Chris had a sudden disturbing hunch that he had seen her somewhere before. No, thank you, monsieur. I am quite comfortable, she said in a thick French accent and turned away. Chris racked his brain trying to place her. It was a minute or so before he clued in. Her hair had been dyed and cut shorter than the oil painting found on Anson. He took out the print and studied it furtively and held it toward Geronimo. She's sitting here next to me, he said in Apache. Geronimo looked over her impassively. I don't like this, Chunde. How come she flies on the same flight and camps right next to us, eh? It, it could just be a lucky chance, maybe. The girl showed no desire to become friendly. Even after takeoff, when dinner was being served, she evaded all of Chris's conversational ploys. At last, the lights were dimmed and the passengers settled back as the jet streaked over the Atlantic. The girl seemed restless and nervous. She leafed through a number of magazines the stewardess brought and finally went forward to choose another from the magazine rack. Chris watched her through narrowed eyes. As she was coming back, a man's hand suddenly reached out from an aisle seat and grabbed her arm. Chris saw her eyes widen in terror. She jerked free and hurried onto her seat. Was he annoying you? Chris asked. No, 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 not at all, monsieur. It was nothing. I think he mistook me for someone else. Chris waited a while. Then he excused himself and went forward to get a magazine. On the way back, he studied the man in the aisle seat. He was a squat, blubber-lipped type, and his head seemed to grow directly out of his shoulders. Chris remembered seeing this man at the boarding gate. His bulging, heavy-lidded eyes stared back at the teen agent, then closed slowly. The boy snatched a brief sleep. It was scarcely midnight New York time when the lights were turned up again and the stewards and stewardesses began to serve breakfast. Presently, the captain's voice announced, Good morning, Madame and Monsieur. We shall land at Orly Airport in half an hour. The weather is warm and sunny, a perfect day for arrival in Paris. There was steady traffic to the restrooms as the passengers freshened up. Finally, the jet landed. Everyone stood up and began filing slowly aft to disembark. Chris and Geronimo retrieved their raincoats from the rack. Chris shrugged on his coat and slid his hand into the pockets and experienced a shock of surprise. There was something odd in the right pocket, something moist and slimy and alive. He pulled it out slowly and saw the sentence of doom in his hand. It was a wriggling, blinking toad, the repulsive and sinister warning sent to all of Toad's intended victims. <laughs> ¶¶